Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... Brian Johnson, writer and director of the new film, Knives Out. I think for me, the fact that it's a very comforting genre, it's like comfort food. And there's a few elements to that. There's, first of all, just the visuals of it, the murder mystery mansion, the richness of the world it creates, the richness of this rogues gallery of suspects and characters. There's also something very clear morally about it that's very comforting, maybe in a fairy tale type way, but in a way that feels very appealing right now where there's moral chaos that's created with this crime. The detective comes in through reason and order. He's able to sort everything out and put everything back in its right place and fix it by the end. There's an unlike film noir, there's no moral ambiguity at the end of a whodunit. It's everything is kind of fixed and put back. The idea of plugging that specifically into America in 2019 with some of the issues that we get into in the movie, again, it's a fantasy, but God, it felt good. That's coming up. But first, I'm here with Meg James, who's a corporate media reporter here at The Times. Meg, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mark. And now I want to talk about the latest news surrounding the so-called Paramount Decrees, which just this week, the U.S. Justice Department has moved to end these kind of longstanding regulations. For our listeners, can you explain kind of what these regulations are and why they've been so significant to Hollywood for so long? The Paramount Decrees are really a fascinating look at Hollywood history and just the evolution of the business. Back in the 1930s, the studios were incredibly powerful. They had all of the talent lined up. They were responsible for what movies would get out. There was no independent film industry. There was no television at that time. And so the movie studios really controlled everything. And the fear was, and this case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, the fear was that these studios, including Paramount, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, were sort of oligarchs in a certain sense who controlled every single element of film production. And so they wanted to remove the anti-competitive elements of this system, which was the exhibition, the theaters. And they thought that if the, the movie studios controlled the output of films and the distribution of films, that that was incredibly anti-competitive. And so they moved to break up at least that aspect of the distribution chain. So what happened was the Supreme Court, you know, said, yes, you know, this is a problem. And so then the government entered into all these separate, what they call consent decrees with the various studios, and they've been known as the Paramount Decrees ever since. And basically what it did was it prevented the movie studios from owning movie theaters from the cinema chains, which at the time were like single screens. It wasn't like these big multiplexes. And they also made several other uh, rulings that the film studios couldn't force terms on the film exhibition community, the theaters, from unreasonably, you know, withholding films, with requiring them to show all of the the films that came out of this particular studio. So it really was an an effort by the U.S. government to level the playing field so that the, the movie theaters had some power in the equation here. Now, why is the Justice Department looking to scrap these regulations now? Well, you have to look at the the era in which these restrictions were in place. Television was just starting to get traction, but it wasn't a mass medium. You know, most Americans couldn't afford to have a TV. 
the movie theater experience was the entertainment experience in America. There was radio, of course. But beyond that, I mean, the, the film studios controlled so much about our film community, what the film experience was. Now here we are in 2019, and we've, we're seeing this explosion of streaming services. There's, you know, 200 cable channels. There's um, broadcast networks. There's podcasts. There's all these different outlets for entertainment. And basically, the U.S. Justice Department under President Trump has moved to get rid of older regulations that they feel are obsolete. And this was one that the um, U.S. antitrust chief, Makem Delarim, felt was an obsolete rule. And so they're moving to get rid of it. They're asking the courts to sort of sunset these regulations over a two-year period. Given the sort of current media landscape of, you know, multiplex exhibition, streaming services, what do you think the impact of this is going to be? I think we're going to have to see. I mean, one of the restrictions, obviously, was that movie studios, the the media companies like Disney and Paramount and Fox and others, Comcast, which now owns NBC Universal and Universal Pictures, couldn't own a movie theater chain. Realistically, these companies are not in the business of, of wanting to control that end at this point in time. You look at Comcast, right? They're a huge power in Philadelphia. You'd think, well, they might want to buy up a bunch of, you know, theaters in, in Philadelphia and treat, you know, residents to their movies. But on the other hand, Comcast's main business is selling pipes, selling cable TV subscriptions, selling broadband subscriptions, everything that has to do with pe- keeping people at home watching movies. So it's really not in their business interest to run out and buy a movie theater chain. And in the past, there's been like very limited exceptions. Disney owns El Capitan, as you know, here in Hollywood. So that aspect, I don't think will have much effect. I think really what you need to look at is There are a handful of films this year. I think it's like five films that made up about 25 to 30% of the overall box office. You have Disney that's incredibly powerful. And I think what we we might see, I'm not saying that we will see it, but what we might see is that these studios now are going to flex their muscles a little bit more. They might say, hey, instead of having you know, 70% of the receipts from the opening weekend, we want 90%. If you're going to have Avengers, you know, you're going to have to pay up. I'm not saying Disney's going to do that, but I mean, there's going to be less sort of um, a hammer to sort of prevent them from more, you know, hard-nosed business sort of practices. So I think really where this might hurt is that these smaller guys, you know, there's three film exhibition companies, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark that own about 50% of all the screens in America. These guys have clout. They have leverage against the big studios, not as much as they used to have, given the consolidation of the film industry. But where you're going to see maybe somebody that's a little bit more under strain are the, the smaller independents, not only the film theater chains, but also filmmakers, which, you know, is increasingly going to find it, I think, more difficult to play in this, this world of the big guys. I think this is something we'll all be keeping our eye on as these regulations are going through this sunset period, and we'll sort of see how things move forward. Meg James, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And now, it's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. Let's take a moment to talk about Eddie Murphy. There is no category more stacked this year than Best Actor. An insane number of great actors competing for five spots which is probably why this week I've received two invitations to receptions for Eddie Murphy to say, hey, come see Dolomite is my name, meet Eddie Murphy, 
bask in the good vibes of this very fun, entertaining movie. Eddie Murphy plays Rudy Ray Moore, who is this comedian initially struggling and then becomes successful playing this kind of crude character he creates. And he wants to take that character and make a black exploitation movie. He's like a Hollywood dreamer. And that kind of resonates for a lot of Oscar voters, obviously. I think that's in its favor. Against it, it's a comedy. Eddie Murphy's been nominated for exactly one Oscar in his entire career. That was uh, Dreamgirls. And here he is again. So comeback story, another thing Oscar voters love, comebacks. His path to an Oscar is a little complicated by the competition. The thing in his favor is that the Golden Globes have a whole category just devoted to comedies and musicals. He will be the favorite to not only land a nomination there, but perhaps to win that award. So if Eddie Murphy wins this Golden Globe, he's going to have to beat Leonardo DiCaprio to do it. It'll be a moment for him on stage to say, hey, remember me? And I think a lot of people will be happy to do so this Oscar season. We're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Universal Pictures' Queen and Slim, the unflinching new drama about a black man and a black woman on a first date who are forced to go on a run after they shoot a police officer in self-defense. As they drive, these two unlikely fugitives will forge a deep and powerful love that will shape the rest of their lives. Starring Academy Award nominee Daniel Kaluuya as Slim and introducing Jodie Turner-Smith as Queen. Opens in theaters this Wednesday, November 27th, for your awards consideration in all categories, including Best Picture. Welcome back. I'm here today with Ryan Johnson, writer and director of the new film Knives Out. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us Hello, today. Mark. I feel like you are going to do this much better than I would. What's the elevator pitch of Knives Out? So Knives Out is a Agatha Christie-style whodunit, but it's an original and it's set in 2019 America. I'd like for this conversation to be sort of spoiler light, right. I guess. But as just a point of protocol, like, how do you feel about spoilers? Do you get uptight about spoilers? I mean, it's a whodunit. You don't want people to know who done it. <laughs> so in that regard, I guess, a little uptight. But, I mean, at the same time, it's, you know, I, tr- I try to intentionally make the movie so that the in- it's not like the entire pleasure of it is guessing who, you know, quote unquote, who done it. It's supposed to be a roller coaster ride, not a crossword puzzle. So I would hope that even if some jerk spoils it for you before you see it, you, you can still watch it and have a good time. Because it's funny, and I, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. It is a movie where there are sort of like twists upon twists. Sure. How aware were you of that? Were you even thinking about like what would or wouldn't be spoilable to people as you were writing? No, not really. I mean, I was really trying to, I mean, the basis for the whole thing was kind of me loving whodunits. First of all, I grew up reading Agatha Christie. I just wanted to make a, I wanted to make a whodunit. I love the, I love the genre and all the conventions of it, but then trying to kind of put an engine in the middle of it that is more of a Hitchcock thriller where so it's not just you're gathering clues and trying to guess who done it that's kind of the least interesting part of a who done it you know i love all the characters in the who done it i love the eccentric detective i love him putting it all together at the end whether or not you know as an audience i can never guess who done it while i'm reading there always hits some point where i've just stopped trying to guess it so for this, I wanted to just kind of make it a really fun ride and make it more of like a suspense movie for most of it, but still have all the pleasures of a whodunit. 
I was at the movie's world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. And after that screening, you talked about how the mechanics of the whodunit became a part of the storytelling of the movie that like you kind of yeah. wanted to turn the genre back on itself in a way. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, you know, I the thing is constructed and I'll talk around spoilers a little bit here, I guess. So the thing is constructed in such a way where almost the fact that you know that the detective is going to solve the case, the fact that you know how whodunits work, that almost becomes the bad guy in the movie. It becomes the thing you're dreading. And that that seemed really interesting to me. Yeah, it, it, whodunits are, I mean, they're kind of an inherently meta genre. They sort of always have been. And so it felt okay to kind of use, do this weird jujitsu where you use the energy of, of how these things work against itself. You know, even going back to your movie Looper, a lot of people wanted to poke holes in that movie and try to find the places where the time travel like didn't work or the timelines didn't match. Yeah. Have you gotten used to writing in such a way, creating movies that have this kind of bulletproof, ironclad aspect to them? Well, you always try. I mean, Looper was a specific example because time travel will never make sense. And anybody who is poking holes in time travel for not making sense doesn't know what they're talking about. It's, it's a, time travel is, is the equivalent of spells in Harry Potter. It's just, and, and that's how I approached it in Looper. I said, look, this is an organic system, this notion of this time loop. And it just like in nature, it's not going to work like gears in a watch. It's going to do its best to adapt to what's happening. It's going to be messy the same way any natural process is messy. The whodunit is different. The whodunit, you do need to, as much as possible, cover every base. That ending of a whodunit where the detective gives the big denouement and lays it all out, that's only satisfying if you feel all the things clicking in and everything fits, every peg feels like it fits into the hole it's going into. So yeah, you have to be a little more precise with, with this genre. Knives Out is a movie that really kind of wears its influences on its sleeve. I mean, as you, you describe it as an Agatha Christie style whodunit. Was that a challenge to still make it feel fresh, to like feel like you were creating something that was indebted to something, but still felt like something new? I mean, not not really for me. I mean, I you know, I, I've worked in a bunch of different genres at this point, And, you know, I love I grew up loving all the movies that I'm drawing from those genres. And the way that I kind of always come at it is I don't feel like I'm kind of creating a collage or cutting and pasting from examples of the genre I'm working in. What I really try and do is kind of blur my vision and figure out what is the heart of what I love about these things. It, for me, it's going to be a very personal thing. You know, what is the thing that really connects for me about this genre? Whether it's a whodunit or kind of heady sci-fi or noir or Star Wars, you know, it's always about figuring out what is the thing that's at the heart of this for me. And then I take that kind of abstract idea and I set that as my goalpost and I find my own way towards it. So because of that, I, 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 yeah, no, I never feel like, oh God, am I just doing karaoke? I, I don't think I could do it if it was just genre karaoke. I don't think I could get excited enough to actually uh, jump in and, and, and make it. And what was it? What was that thing at the center of the whodunit? I think for me... The fact that it's a very comforting genre, I always, I always, it's like comfort food. And there's a few elements to that. There's, first of all, just the visuals of it, the murder mystery mansion, the richness of the world it creates, the richness of this rogues gallery of suspects and characters. But then, yeah, there's kind of like a, a richness to it. There's also something very clear morally about it that's very comforting maybe in a fairy tale type way but in a way that feels very appealing right now where there's moral chaos that's created with this crime the detective comes in 
Through reason and order, he's able to sort everything out and put everything back in its right place and fix it by the end. There's an, unlike film noir, there's no moral ambiguity at the end of a whodunit. It's everything is kind of fixed and put back. The idea of plugging that specifically into America in 2019 with some of the issues that we get into in the movie, yeah, again, it's a fantasy, but it feels, it, God, it felt good. Tell me more about the 2019-ness of the movie. I mean, you reference... SJWs and alt-right trolls. There's a <laughs> Hamilton joke. What for you, what was it that you were trying to do by injecting those very contemporary sort of ideas into the movie? Well, part of it was just you got to kind of write from what you're thinking about and what you're angry about in the moment. But another big part of it was you know getting back to the Christie. I think that people have a perception of Agatha Christie's books as being timeless, probably because our experience with them is mostly adaptations that are period pieces. The truth is she was not a, she was not writing timeless books. She was writing very much to her moment whenever she was writing. She was engaging with British society at that time. It's not like she was an overtly political writer or socially conscious writer, but she was very much engaged with society and had an opinion about it. And so then the idea of, I feel like so often you see and I love – I'm a whodunit junkie. I watch everything that comes out. I love the Murder on the Orient Express that came out. I love, I'll watch anything that comes out. It's an Agatha Christie movie. But I feel like the fact that they are, we are still just adapting her work and just kind of doing it over and over again, it feels like that adds to the idea that this genre is kind of encased in amber and is kind of, time, again, timeless. So I wanted to just break that timelessness. I wanted to say, no, there's something very potent about applying the whodunit to right now and creating character types like you said. So we have internet trolls. We have lifestyle influencers. We have lifestyle gurus. We have people who could only exist in 2019, not just Colonel Mustard with, with a cell phone. I've heard you say how one thing you like about Christie's storytelling is that there's always the whodunit, but there's always a secondary engine, something else happening in the story. Yeah. And for you with Knives Out, is the political undercurrent of the story that other engine? No, the political undercurrent is hopefully engaged on every single level of it, but it's not like a driving narrative force. The thing to me that is that second engine is the Hitchcock thriller that's kind of embedded into this. It centers around the character of Marta, and it's very much a, as opposed to clue gathering, and can we work out this puzzle and figure out the big twist at the end, it's Hitchcockian empathy-based suspense. It's, oh, I like this person. Oh, no, they're really in trouble. How are they going to get out of this? And then sweating to see at each step if they're able to kind of stay one step ahead of their problems. That, to me, is kind of the secondary engine in the middle of it. Because with the character of Marta, who's played by Ana de Armas, so in the film, she's an immigrant, and it's kind of a running gag of everyone keeps getting saying she's from a different country. No one seems to quite remember where she's really from. Mm. And then you discover that her mother is undocumented and is in danger of being deported. And that feels very real and sort of serious in the middle of the movie. Given the tone of the movie, how did you deal with this very heavy, real thing in the middle of this kind of lighter whodunit? I mean, I thought it was vital. I mean, to me, it, that balance, but also not being afraid to do that to me, it, it, it's part and parcel of this not being a parody of whodunits. This is not a movie about – even all the meta stuff we've been talking about, ultimately at the end of the day, I really – I didn't want this to be a, a whodunit parody about whodunits. Um, like, you know, Clue. I love Clue, but it's a, it's a parody or, you know, Murder by Death. This, I wanted to do a whodunit that's about something else. And it's going to be kind of cheeky and self-aware, but ultimately at the end of the day, it has to land emotionally and it has to have – 
something on its mind we're talking about, and it has to be satisfying at the end on multiple levels beyond just figuring out the puzzle. And that was a crucial element. Now, there's a number of other movies that have come out recently, Joker, Parasite, the television series Succession, that seem to be dealing with some of these same thematic ideas that Knives Out is, this sort of discontent Mm. between the haves and the have-not and a certain sort of undercurrent of just eat the rich. And for you, especially as a film fan, somebody who watches a lot of movies, how do you feel as a filmmaker to then see these other movies that are sort of treading in the same territory that you are? Man, it makes sense. We're all, we swim in the same waters and we're, you know, film comes out of what's on the culture's mind at any given moment. And so it makes, look, it makes a lot of sense. It As opposed to kind of the movie making a political statement, although it may have, look, it very much has, it's not a subtle film. It very much has a perspective on the stuff it's talking about. But to me, I don't think I could write a movie that's just making some kind of political statement. I think for me, what I what interested me was kind of using all of these different suspects to examine in all these different facets in ways that reflect back on myself, first and foremost, the idea of privilege and the idea of, in America, how we like to have this illusion of it being an even playing field and how we self-mythologize uh, our own journey to kind of ignore the ways in which the playing field is not even, how we use that to shut other people out and to consider other people less than us if they haven't gotten to where we've gotten because of that. You know, not just point a finger and and wag my finger. I happen to be, you know, like a Hollywood liberal, so I just wag my finger at those bad Republicans or whatever. But no, to look inside myself and to say with all these characters, even the ones on the spectrum that are closer to me, how are they guilty of that? That to me is is much more fruitful ground. The diversity in your casting, having a, the character by Ana de Armas be such a sort of a strong element of the story here, obviously with Kelly Marie Tran's character of Rose Tico in, in Star Wars The Last Jedi. But it's not, this is something you've actually had in all your films. And going back to Brick, Brothers Bloom, Looper, you've actually had surprisingly diverse casts in all of your films. Was that something you feel like you've always been conscious of and always been thinking about? Or is that only more recently become like a really something that's actually top of mind for you? Well, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, not thinking of it in terms of like homework, but it's just, it's more interesting to have a, a wide variety of people in, in your films, you know? And um, and for me, it's obviously, it's become something that everybody's talking about recently, which I think is great. And I just, I don't know, man, I just think it's more interesting to see faces up on the screen that we haven't seen in these different roles, you know, for most of the history of cinema. I mean, to me, that's just more, that's just better storytelling. It's just more interesting. Because I don't want to ask you to wade into the waters of the recent debates that have been going on about comments made by Martin Scorsese about Marvel. But to me, what is interesting about that is it brings up sort of almost like an existential question of why we make movies and what movies are for. The question I do want to ask you is what keeps drawing you back to making movies? What is it about movie making that you enjoy and that you feel works as a vehicle for ideas? Well, I mean, I think it's uh, Scorsese, he was speaking to what cinema is to him, you know, and everybody has their own way into what's powerful about movies for them. Yeah, I mean, I could listen to Scorsese all day long talk about, even even if I even if there are things he says that I, you know, I, I don't feel the same way about. I, I, just listening to his perspective on what makes cinema resonate for him is a gift. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a big question. I don't know how to answer it without sounding pretentious. But Be pretentious. <laughs> okay. They, uh, the way that, for me, every the, the thing that gets me excited about making something new is 
both the combination of there is so many different types of movies I love and being able – part of it is just kind of like Halloween, being able to play dress up and put on a new outfit and kind of play around in a different sandbox or visit a different country basically you know, to kind of explore this genre and take the pleasure and the familiarity of it and the things that I can surprise me about it. Part of it is just growing up loving movies and loving making movies and then the other vital part is using that and, and – using that in order to explore a question that I don't know the answer to and usually something regarding myself, you know, not to make a statement, not to get up on a soapbox or something, but to genuinely use each movie to explore a theme or something I'm wrestling with or something I'm angry about and trying to figure out what I'm actually angry about with it. If I'm angry about it, it's probably because it reflects something I don't like in myself. Increasingly for me, the interesting challenge is can you retain the popular entertainment form of a movie and still get that and have that be part and parcel to it? Not hide that underneath the popular form, but have it go hand in hand so that part of the true entertainment is also the different layers of chewing on this stuff. That to me and seeing how far you can push that in pop culture, that, that seems like a really interesting thing. Because Knives Out is exactly the kind of movie you're not supposed to be able to make in Hollywood anymore. It's a mid-budget, original story. It's essentially for adults. Are you even surprised at all that this movie got made? I mean, I'm, look, I'm shocked any movie gets made. And it's a small miracle that literally any movie gets made. <laughs> yeah, I know everyone, there's lots of hand-wringing right now about that element. I mean, I've, I don't know. And and I'm sure everybody's right that there is there is worrying trends in the industry. I Look, man, I get to the end of every year, especially this year. I have a hard time narrowing down my list of the top movies that you just described. I have a hard time narrowing it down to 10, you know, or even 20. And maybe it's just a matter of the weeds will always grow up through the concrete. But I feel like interesting art will always find a way to get out there, get out there and exist. And I know this movie exists. There's plenty. I could name another like half dozen movies out there now that are exactly what you described. They exist. Audiences just have to engage and find them, I guess. I would have my license revoked if I don't ask you at least something about Star Wars related. Sure. So bear with me. What do you got? Now, well, it's about two years now since Star Wars The Last Jedi was released. And in that time, the movie, both I think for many people, and I include myself, it has only grown in esteem. I think there are some people who just see it as a greater and greater achievement and a genuine film. And then there is this other faction of people who just can't let it go and genuinely hate the movie, <laughs> hate you. Like, Did you have any idea that the movie would be as controversial and divisive as it ended up being? Uh, well, I mean, look, I knew that I had been a Star Wars fan my whole life. So I knew and I was look, I was in my 20s when the prequels came out. I know how passionate people are about Star Wars. And I know that every fan has something slightly different they want from Star Wars. And it's no Star Wars movie is going to please everybody. And people are going to get really passionate and excited about it and very angry and upset on both sides. I mean, I didn't know in that I wasn't like rubbing my hands together like, oh, this is really a be controversial ha. no I was just trying to I was just making a great what I what to me I, I hope I was just trying to make the best Star Wars movie I possibly could and stay true to what Star Wars is look yeah I don't know I, as, as a it doesn't really surprise me just because I've been living in that world since I was five years old and that's what that world is and the passion on both sides it's two sides of the same coin it's like the force mark uh you can't have one side without the other and and so 
it's no use for me to be upset or better be shocked or clutch my pearls at the fact that there's this passionate anger when I'm also getting the full benefit, you know. 95% of what I experience is the positive passion of the fans. And that's a gift that I would... And whether or not, whatever their opinion is of The Last Jedi, the fact that they love Star Wars and they're engaging in a conversation about it in, you know, in good faith and not just through abuse. That, to me, is the essence of Star Wars fandom. And that's something that has only been strengthened over the past two years for me. So I don't know. I feel very lucky. For you as a filmmaker... Many other people have entered the arena of Lucasfilm and these contemporary Star Wars films and either left the projects, left the movie in production. You somehow navigated this maze that many other people seem to have failed to do. What do you think you did or what was it about you and your movie that you were able to navigate this world and end up with this personal idiosyncratic movie at the end of it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I, I, I have no idea. I know, that, I know that we had a fantastic experience top to bottom with it. And I know that everyone at Lucasfilm and Kathy, everyone at Disney, everyone was just completely supportive of the process. I sat down, we worked out the story, we worked it, worked it out with Lucasfilm, and so we talked to JJ about it. It was just a very smooth process of figuring out what this thing was going to be. And then once we figured it out, we shot that movie, we put that movie together and put that movie out. I can just speak to my experience of it. Other people's sets are like other people's marriages, you know. If you're outside of them and you think you know <laughs> what's going on inside them, you're probably wrong. <laughs> so uh, maybe someday they'll speak on their own about what their experiences was, but I, I, I can only articulate mine. And the new film is Knives Out. Ryan Johnson, thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you, Mark. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real.